0: and load. This is Steve Dace. The Steve Dace Show.
1: Well, greetings and welcome to The Steve Dace Show on Blaze TV radio and podcasts. No matter where you are, no matter when you are, we are glad that you've decided to spend some time with us today. By the way, I'm not Steve Dace. I'm his producer, Aaron. Steve is out for at least a little while today. Todd and I will be in, we will be at the helm here Uh, just trying to wade our way through the mess that is the decline of civilization and try to get in a few laughs every day because, you know, that's kind of my priority on this show. I don't know about you, Todd, but that's my priority, laughing. Anyway, if you want to contact us, you can contact the big man himself at uh, Steve Dace Show on Twitter. You can find us on Facebook by searching for Steve Dace or email him, steve at stevedace.com. Uh, you can find me and Todd on Twitter. That's probably our preferred method of communication. I'm at Dace Producer on Twitter. He's at Dace Online. Uh, coming up later on into the show, into the next half hour, we'll try to do some uh, Theology Thursday on what exactly went down yesterday. A couple of stories re- involving religious liberty, or maybe more uh, precisely, a religious test. We'll talk about what that means. Uh, also, into the next hour, we're going to wade into the Tucker Carlson debate. He has kicked off an extremely profound debate across the conservative Twitter sphere and conservative blog, blogosphere. A debate that we've been trying to have on this show at least ever since I've been been here, and since Steve, I think, has started. Todd and I'm excited to talk about that. Brad Wilcox, he is the director of the National Marriage Project at the University of Virginia. He wrote a piece in defense of what Tucker Carlson had to say. Going to be a great conversation, I hope, and we'll get into that again into the next hour. But first, as always, it's what happened while we were away. What happened while we were away brought to you by Protecting Your Brand.
2: You know, I married. Steve, He's I have, asked you, I have, Steve, I have asked you in the, the past, American. let me tell you this, Come no wait, on. let me say this, go ahead, go ahead. I have asked you in the past, and I will ask you again today, to stop referring to me as left. Let me remind you that I was a Republican when Donald Trump was a Democrat. I was a Republican when Donald Trump you're was an very, independent. You're a very I was a Republican, Republican and supporting Republicans when Donald Trump had if, Hillary look, and Bill Clinton at his wedding and was giving like, Nancy Pelosi money. So the fact that people like you have enabled Donald Trump to take this party hostage and change and give up and compromise really. convictions and principles, Republican ones, that I grew up with does not make me left. I fled left.
1: That's Anna Navarro going ape after being called a leftist by another CNN panelist. It's an important reminder of how the media works. Navarro has to protect her niche on CNN as the anti-conservative conservative. Make hating Russ vote great again. The official now leading OMB and the Trump team's shutdown response nearly had his nomination derailed due to his comments about Muslims. Those comments about Muslims were basically vote saying he's a Christian. On that topic... Democratic Congresswoman Tulsi Gabbard wrote an op-ed for The Hill yesterday slamming Democrats for, quote-unquote, religious bigotry. Maybe we can share a country with her. We cannot share a country with her fellow Hawaiian, Maisie Hirono, the senator who asked the judicial nominee, Brian Busher, quote, If confirmed, do you intend to end your membership with the Knights of Columbus to avoid any appearance of bias? Ah, yes, the Knights of Columbus, the explicitly Catholic all-male organization whose goal is explicitly to be a huge platform for helping people. Of course, Blue checkmark Twitter went crazy for Tulsi Gabbard stepping out of line. Tulsi Gabbard is accusing female senators of anti-Catholic bigotry for rightly questioning a judicial nominee's membership in an extreme right-wing, anti-choice, anti-LGBT, all-male organization. Gabbard is not a progressive. She's a fraud. The Paul Manafort story I told you about yesterday and reported upon by the New York Times has a correction. Apparently, the Times got wrong the name of who Manafort was trying to leak 2016 polling data to. It's not someone close to the Kremlin. The crime is still there, of course, but the obvious attempt to link this particular story to Russia seems to have flamed out. Wall update. Just left a meeting with Chuck and Nancy, a total waste of time. I asked what is going to happen in 30 days if I quickly open things up. Are you going to approve border security, which includes a wall or steel barrier? Nancy said no. I said bye-bye. Nothing else works. Kevin Hart, my man. Kevin Hart... He said no to hosting the Oscars after being re-invited, after he was disinvited, after old tweets resurfaced, and then he said this to Good Morning America.
3: If I didn't say that I addressed it way back then in 2008, 2009, then I would get it, but I know I did. Then I readdressed it again. Then I went on Ellen and did what I thought was addressing it. Well, Were and you surprised at the backlash that Ellen received from it? It shows me that there is no, there is no, there is no ending to it. If you keep feeding this energy, then it's going to grow. You're not getting no more of my energy from it. I'm not giving no more. Because it showed that it's endless. Mm -hmm. So I'm not shutting down the questions. I hear everything you're saying. But I want everybody to know I'm done with it. It's a choice that I personally made to say I'm not addressing it anymore. And that's not from an angry place. It's just from a place of it's never going to really end. I'm done with it. So
1: if people choose to continue to let it grow, then do what you got to do. And that's what happened while we were away in two minutes or less. All right, Todd, let's start at the very top. That clip of Anna Navarro. The reason why I led with that is because it actually is, it's not just a leftist going ape, um, you know, just to laugh at the same way that we would laugh at uh, Ocasio-Cortez or someone like that, some other trope of, uh, of leftists. She, she is, she fashions herself, Todd, as a Republican, or she left the Republican, or she left the, you know, never Trump, ex-Republican. She fashions herself as a conscious conservative who hates everything Donald Trump does. And we've mentioned her on the show numerous times. You know, um, Donald Trump could turn himself into butterflies and daisies and Anna Navarro would say I hate butterflies and daisies they are a scourge upon this earth that's the level of disdain she has for Donald Trump but you notice there that that guest I don't know who the other panelist was I don't really care but you notice how that other panelist really didn't have any fear of calling her out for what she is which is a leftist because that's the positions those are the positions that she takes every single day on CNN But see, that's not her brand. She has to protect her brand. She's carved out a niche on CNN by being the side that they want for a particular story. That is what we're talking about when it comes to media bias and how they frame that Overton window of what's conservative. All of a sudden, Anna Navarro, what she says is conservative, even though that's not anything. That's not anything to do with what we would define as conservative. This is a window into the soul of how the media... Helps shape the narrative, and when that guy just kind of busted it up, and at least made it some attempt to bust it up, you saw how she reacted because that's their Overton window. Uh oh, no, 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 no. She's that's their Overton window getting busted up a little bit, Todd. And I think this is an important reminder again. Of how the media works and how it operates and how it tries to control and frame the debate.
4: Well, that's absolutely true. It's also uh, speaking of Overton Windows. It's a window uh, into uh, the GOP and how ridiculously blah it has been for a long, long time. And to make that point, I actually have to defend Anna Navarro. I'm not fun, but listen, uh, I I take her. I don't I, I didn't know Aaron did you know who Anna Navarro was no, before no. like a couple years ago no. but I, I I'll take her at her word that she was a uh, Republican uh for a long long time and, and she and the history she fled uh, and there were all kinds of people like that uh, of Hispanic descent particularly Cuban descent but others as well um uh, in the Republican Party but that Republican party, was turned her and I think what her initial instincts for belonging into what you see now. They allowed (laughs) that to be that her safe place where she became a caricature and she became the person then when Donald Trump came along and I know you're a fan of this uh, that, that Donald Trump has exposed all of the frauds, all of the liars on all sides. And and she's just one of legion. There's nothing particularly special about her. There's all kinds of people who got into the Republican Party who I believe got there at the start for reasons, uh, policy positions, causes uh, that I think we can identify with. And then they became Gollum. She's just she's just the latest. She's surrounded on all sides of them in, with, by the uh, – all sides by them within the Republican Party, within the press that you mentioned, within the Democrat Party. Um, we, we are part of, of talking about a party on the right that defends the right, defends the, right uh, the GOP, that hasn't been defending the things of the right for a very long time. So the question isn't, should we be uh, surprised uh, by Anna Navarro, uh, the, qu- the question is, what do we do to make sure that the GOP does no longer produce this kind of person? She's not unique. There's all kinds of her all around you.
1: Yeah, and I go back to – I think this has everything to do with the conversation we had on the Blaze Roundtable the other day with Chris Pandolfo from Conservative Review talking about – the Gallup poll um, that shows I think it was 32 or 37 percent of people identify as conservatives in the United States, and the number is even you know, uh, substantially higher within the GOP. And that's because nobody knows what conservatism is, and that has everything to do with this uh, uh, conversation as well. The reason nobody knows what conservatism is is all of the reasons that you just articulated about the Republican Party – Conservatism tried to use the Republican Party as a vehicle to advance conservatism. Um, that wor- that worked for what one president, one two-term president. Uh, after that, no, it's just been either an industry, or we've been aligning ourselves and allowing ourselves to get duped by people who really don't share our values at all. And because of that, that's why you get so many people who are upset with the Republican Party, the Anna Navarros of the world. You. Um, you it, Pick one. Uh, I'm sure you have one in your mind right now, a name in your head right now. Pick one. That is the reason, is because we allow we just, we allowed ourselves to get uh, hijacked and co opted, or to align ourselves with people who don't share our values. And in doing so, we undefined what conservatism means. And then it's just a snowball effect. If we're ever going to recover conservatism, true conservatism, one we have to change what we actually. The word we actually use for conservatives because it's just too nebulous right now. And two, again, the GOP has to die, and I hope that day hastens uh, to get here. Anything you want to add on that topic, Todd? No, just don't, just don't kid yourself when you're sitting there in your chair
4: that Anna Navarro, um, you know, is is a fraud. She, she's actually co- closer to a being a standard run of the mill Republican than any actual conservative is. It's just true.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, moving on, and I, I think we'll talk about this a little bit more at the bottom of the hour, but um, Tulsi, G- we'll talk about this angle for now. Tulsi Gabbard-Todd, um, did she do – you, do you think if she had any – I don't know how big of a star she is. I've heard her name before, so at least I know who she is for a representative. is isn't true of every single representative um, in, in Congress. Did she – if she has any aspirations at uh, running for higher office or getting accepted into them leadership, her writing an op-ed in the Hill, of all places, yesterday slamming Democrats for their religious bigotry, uh, other Democrats for religious bigotry, um, does that help or hurt her, Todd? (sighs) Um,
4: I think it probably hurts her. Sanity has no place – on the left anymore. Uh, now I read a little bit about her uh, and she was described as f- former formerly conservative and that she over time became a Democrat. I I, I don't care enough to go back and find out the facts uh, behind that. But, but if that is even remotely true, you need to do a about face Tulsi and, and go back. Uh, you, you're not going to be allowed Uh, To defend uh, anything other than the strict dogma of those who time after time after time, the ones who go after Jack Phillips, the ones who go Mm -hmm. after the nuns, the ones who go after, as Aaron already talked about, uh, the uh, Catholic men's organization that more than anything else is known for making delicious pancakes after mass. All right. Those are over and over again the people that need to go down in the Democrat Party um, because those WEDS issues froth up the base. And the left is nothing without a progressive, frothed-up base that swarms like locusts to the polls. They need you angry. They need you pissed off. There will be no peace ever again. So she—no. Uh, and, and look at her. She She's— uh, you look at her, the optics of her uh, it, they're the same thing as Ocasio Cortez. Th- that's a very attractive uh, woman, a woman uh, a- of principle, but she doesn't have the right principles. She's not just yeah. crazy like Ocasio Cortez. So uh, even you know even if she comes out with a dancing video, uh, it's not gonna help her as long as she dares to say, you know what? Um, this party is the party of like uh, JFK. Al Smith, those are, you know, stories that used to be part and parcel of every textbook in America about the, the opportunity, the genuine opportunity uh, that Democrats uh, gave to people that perhaps weren't available elsewhere. Well, that I mean, that may, those are unicorns now. Um, and uh, those are unicorns. You actually those are unicorns that this party drinks the blood from like Voldemort to sustain its life. She's got no shot.
1: I would be curious to 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 know who she thinks her audience or who she's trying to reach with that piece. Now I like that she said it and like I said in the montage, she at least if that's her, what she really believes, she's a person all other issues aside, you know, uh, of course we've got our closing issues aside, if you if she believes uh, in that type of, you know, pluralism, she's probably somebody you can share the country with. Um we're going to probably disagree on maybe you know, 80 90 95% of issues. But if she thinks, you know, what I've got no issue with your religion, and your religion shouldn't inhibit you from serving in public office, then uh, okay, uh, she's a person you can you can kind of live with. I'm trying to figure out though from her position. Unless she just thought because I'm always I'm always looking at this I'm always looking at this through through a lens of of total depravity on both sides, really on both sides. What's your angle with this? I don't really believe you. You're just doing this because you have great principles. In this sphere, I believe you're always—this is always about politics. I'm trying to figure out what you're, what you're trying to accomplish here. And I, for the life of me, Todd, I cannot figure out what she is trying to accomplish. So Occam's razor um, Occam's Razor is paring down—well, maybe—here's here, here's one thing, and this is a little bit of a stretch. She's trying to moderate a little bit. She's trying to differentiate herself from the rest of the Democrats right now by going a little bit to the right— Um, If she's likable in doing that, she might be successful. Now, the base, as we've already talked about, ad nauseum of the Democrat Party, they can't stop, won't stop, and they never will uh, with going to the left. So that dynamic, again, I think more than anything, this is just a picture of the dynamic, maybe, maybe, that we're going to see in the Democratic Party uh, leading up to the caucuses and the the primary for their their side of the ticket in 2020.
4: Every once in a while, Occam's razor takes us to a happy place. Usually yeah. it doesn't to me, for me, there's actually something better than what you suggested. She might be positioning uh, herself, but actually uh, to me, more likely not because I know anything about her, but it, but it honestly, when you, it's just like, she had a Rosa Parks moment and just said, Oh hell yeah. no. Enough of this. I can't do this. I need to go home and sleep well at night. Mm-hmm. I can't be a part of this cult. I hope that's it. It it seems actually as likely as anything without knowing anything about her. So and this now this becomes incumbent of on us to reach out to her. Give her a shot. Again, I don't know what she, she stands about anything. I mean, she might be Nayral's best friend for all uh, for all I know. But on this, not only is this sane, not only this is decent, this is vital. If we can't win on this argument, this is not the United States of America
1: yeah, anymore. Nope. And that's where I was actually going to go next is, is basically what you said. The Occam's razor takes us to, well, if there's no possible way for her to if if there's no uh, possibility that she's trying to angle for something or get some uh, support out of some group because that group doesn't really that that message re- resonates with doesn't really exist on the left side of the aisle, the only thing that we're left with is that she really believes that this was the right thing to do and then what needed to be said at that time, which is a good thing. And you know, it's okay sometimes. Todd, did you know that it's okay uh, to talk about good things sometimes? You know, to mention the possibility of. I knew it was OK. Uh-huh.
4: I just couldn't find any good things. Yeah, that's my there, problem. There you know, with, one more thing about her with uh, and t- thinking about Ocasio-Cortez, you know, that's one thing where a, a woman in politics, a woman in politics on the left, broadly speaking, and this goes to what you said about the positioning. The most likely positioning thing is is not necessarily to the right of her, but just knowing that, it, 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 look, she is tw- twenty what is she 27 28 20, uh, 29 i think 20, yeah. okay she's 29 but she with almost zero gravitas at her dispense and i mean i mean that in the sense of you know real life boots on the ground experience that all of us need to kind of get better at our jobs she has become the darling of a party and if you're a woman who has aspirations beyond just where you are right now you you, you need to deal with that on some level and how do you rise to the next level to compete with it that that that's rational uh as well so i think i'm coming back after talking about there's a more hopeful answer to the positioning answer aaron you're 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 in the ballpark i think
1: yeah it could be or again like we said it could just be that you really thought that this was the right thing to say at the right time um moving on to the the new york times story from earlier this week about paul monafort originally now todd correct me if i'm wrong if you if you studied up on this now originally the story was that Paul Manafort was accused by the special counsel in newly unsealed court documents of uh, leaking polling info uh, from the 2016 campaign to a business associate of his with close ties to Kremlin intelligence. The story was corrected that this person, this business associate, was not the right person named in the story. It was some Ukrainian... Uh, which is still a crime. You uh, you can't do that. But it's not this person that's linked with Kremlin intelligence. That seems like a little bit of a mistake. And yes, we can. Let's let's give the the New York Times the benefit of the doubt. De-
4: <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no. I I, I, uh, I saw was, on Twitter they, were, yeah.
4: they had like three authors on this story. Yeah,
1: yeah. How do you how do you Todd? You've been in a newsroom before. How do you screw something like this up?
4: Because you want it to be true. That's that's it. Uh, and, and by he, the way,
1: by the way, we're not saying that. Uh, and I think I made this clear multiple times now. We're not saying that Paul Manafort is absolved for anything, oh, or, and no. by extension, Donald Trump Listen. is absolved from anything. He's still a slimy character. But um, again, terrible people doing terrible things to each other terribly. That this is what that is.
4: Well, and here's the thing: pull yourself back from everything and just be willing to acknowledge your gut instincts about things for a second. When I initially saw this story and I haven't done any deep dive, the initial story about uh, Manafort giving this information uh, to the people he ultimately didn't give it to. But my gut reaction was, yeah, I believe, I believe that it's Paul Manafort. Oh, yeah. I mean, yep. so, and that, that I can spe- believe it either way. But. And so that speaks beyond to my point about journalism in general. It, this is such a bizarre, weird soap opera. But beyond journalism, they – drip, 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 drip. They say things all of the time and you're exposed to it. And even if you have a BS meter, you, you just you, – You have no idea the level of psychological warfare that is being played with you, uh, uh, played on you on a daily basis with misinformation from the pest.
1: And they know, and and they know, Todd, that the retraction, we say this all the time, the retraction, the correction is never, never, never going to get as much airtime or play as the original story.
4: Yeah, and this is – in traditional standards of journalism, this kind of offense – would be the kind that gets you, at the very least, uh, demoted, t- taken off uh, some kind of um, you, you, whatever beach you're on, and you know you have to go down, go away, and you know su- sweep the barn out for a little while. You know, no one believes that that's going to happen because Aaron just nailed it. Th- these are just these are very forgivable mistakes because the mission of the press is to simply take down the things of the right whatever they are and god knows there's things of the the right these days that deserve to get taken down we're ahead of those and we do it far better quite frankly than the press uh does it but um it, it it's a scam uh they that no one will be punished for for what just happened and the reason it happened initially um was because they wished it was true
1: yeah, that's well said. Um, the wall and the meeting yesterday that Trump had with uh, Chuck and Nancy. Um, I'm at the point now, Todd, and there's a bunch of hubbub. Yeah, Trump literally said bye-bye. Okay. That matters why. Anyway, I'm at the point now, Todd. I don't know about you. Uh, with this story, this is, like, this is like if I was to watch a NASCAR race. I'd watch it the very beginning and the very end. I don't really care a whole, unless there's a crash, I don't really care a whole lot about the other 5, you know, 499 laps or 498 laps. Um, Come back to me when you figure this out, stand your ground, come back to me when you're ready to put a shovel in the ground, and then we'll talk and we'll maybe have a good time and we'll celebrate. If you come back to me and you're not going to put a shovel in the ground, then we're going to have a problem and you're going to be labeled a failure, Donald Trump." This is the uh, the part of the story where this is going to be kind of its own side pot mu- molar council over here. Well, Chuck said this, and Nancy said this, and Don said this, and Stephen Miller wrote this, and blah, 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 blah. Just, I don't care. Come back to me when you've got something that's actually going to happen. And if not, then you're a failure. Uh, but if so, good job. What about you, Todd? Yeah,
4: the Babylon Bee kind of nailed uh this, when it uh, said the fact check on Donald Trump's speech started instantly <laughs> yeah, with the good words, evening. Uh, Good evening, <laughs> and that that was wrong. Uh, but I, I want to go back and echo what I said yesterday. I said it would almost be worth passing a, you know, whatever green plan that they have out if it would, could part of just blowing up the system. And, and I, uh, when I said that, I got to thinking, oh, I bet people are just going to think that that's nuts. But really, the, the only way. To win this game is not to play, and that's at, Donald Trump right now. For all of his faults, is 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 not playing the game. Uh, I, there's no guarantee that's going to go to a good place. It might just be a temporary uh, one-off. But we we can't keep going on like this. It, I, I I hope. That he actually, regardless of whether he wanted to give that speech or not, there's, there's a part of Donald Trump that realizes his life is going to get better if he blows up the game that the Republican establishment plays, that the progressive play, that the Demo, the, the, the um, American Gothic on barbiturates that was uh, uh, the, the leaders of the Democratic Party in response to him uh, and their speech, uh, blow it all up. It, it It's toxic, it's worthless. We need to move on
1: uh finally, Todd, we have had this conversation numerous times on our show, whether it in, most of it involves judicial supremacy. Um I think it's going to go in a new area now, and i hope I hope if this is any indication uh that this you know th- this will be spreading to a new area that we have this conversation about, and that conversation is just saying. No. <laughs> we usually say that about you know, judicial supremacy tyranny is going to keep going on and on and on until somebody gets up the gumption to just stick their finger in the court's nose and say, "No." Um, Kevin Hart this week has said no, but not just no to who you think you think I'm talking about. He said no to the Oscars who reinvited him after they ditched him. Uh, because of some old tweets of him that resurfaced, that offended like three people on Twitter. Kevin Hart, did you notice what he said there, Todd? He's saying no to the mob. Yeah. He's just saying, no, I'm not having this conversation. <laughs> He's saying no to the mob. That's really encouraging. For a guy of his stature, that is really cool. And I think that's what more people need to do to the Twitter mob. Just ignore it. Well, I'm done. No. This is not a conversation I'm going to have. I'm done.
4: And his diagnosis of everything was, and as it often is with many comedians, and there's many crass comedians, and he has the ability to be crass, but he got it at a profound level. He said, listen, I, I tried. I tried then, and I tried then, and I tried then, and it never matters. I can't give you enough pounds of flesh. That's exactly the point. So, like I said with Tulsi Gabbard, folks, even if you never would want to see him live, what, whatever, reach out to him via twitter or s- some other way and say listen what uh, uh, th- thank you for giving an example of how to live a genuine life that is not always looking to cave to the mob yeah. and or claim victim status yep. god bless you my friend i wish you well in your life
1: yeah helmet sticker to kevin hart uh we'll come back going to talk about russ vote religious liberty for worldview when's actually theology thursday That's coming up next here on Blaze TV Radio and the podcast. I'm not Steve Dace, and I did not go to public school, actually. I was... Home, I'm I was homeschooled. Thank you very much, uh, Mr. Big Voice Guy. Welcome back to the Steve Day Show on Blaze TV, Blaze Radio, and wherever, whenever you are listening on the podcast later. We thank you for tuning in. Steve is out uh, for a little while today. Uh, instead, it's me and uh, his editor, Todd Erzin, filling in for him quite capably, I might add. <clears throat> Uh, for Steve Dace. Uh, hopefully you're in good hands. We have no idea. We do have hands, but I don't I don't know if they're any good, Todd. Uh, before we get uh, started talking about Russ votes, his name has come up again. Um, it was about uh, six months ago or so I got a note in the mail from my bank um, saying, uh, we saw that you used your card somewhere that's been compromised. We're sending you a new card. Uh, it's going to be here and thus in such a time. And I'm thinking, oh, crap. Was, you know, was it actually my identity stolen? And they're sending me this notification via snail mail. Why are they doing that? Why was why was I still able to use my card when it was when they knew that it was used somewhere that had been compromised? That was my debit card. I don't have a ton of money. Um, you know, Steve pays us pretty well, but I don't. You know, I'm, I'm not loaded but even just that debit card being used somewhere it wasn't the debit card itself just being used somewhere that was compromised and my bank overreacting which they should um and sending me a new one that in and of itself has caused months and months now of headaches just for different things that i have my card used for recurring uh, fee- fees here and there again i don't have a whole lot of money i certainly don't have or own a house yet so, I can't imagine what it would be like to have your identity stolen or even your home title stolen. You know that marriott um uh, data breach that we were talking about Steve was affected by that. Steve and his wife were affected by that five hundred million names dates of dates of birth, other information that's pertinent to you imagine if that happened to your title lock home title fraud or your hi- your home title i should say home title fraud is exploding uh, your home's title uh, and are online and any thief can download your home's title forward your name off it and transfer it uh, home title lock showed us this it's really easy creepy uh, creepingly easy to do creepily easy to do and it is a huge huge problem For pennies a day, though, Home Title Lock puts a virtual barrier around your home's title. And the instant they detect sinister activity, they're on it helping to shut it down. Your home's title may already be compromised. You can find out. Sign up at HomeTitleLock.com for your free title scan and report. That's a $100 value for free. Uh, HomeTitleLock.com. HomeTitleLock.com. I keep wanting to say I target brokers; those are the only live reads I do. Hometitlelock.com Get your free scan today. All right, Russ Vote. Russ Vote. Uh, you may remember that name. He was uh, in the news in conservative news uh, about this time two years ago. I think it was two, almost two years ago, one and a half years ago or so for these. Uh, this exchange, I should say.
3: And that is in the piece that I referred to that you wrote for a publication called Resurgent. You wrote. Muslim, quote, Muslims do not simply have a deficient theology. They do not know God because they have rejected Jesus Christ, his son, and they stand condemned. End of quote. Do you believe, do you believe that that statement is Islamophobic?
0: Absolutely not, Senator. I'm a Christian, and I believe in a Christian set of principles based on my faith, uh, that post, as I stated in the questionnaire to this committee, was to defend my alma mater, Wheaton College, a Christian school that has a statement of faith that includes the centrality of Jesus Christ for salvation. And Again, I
3: apologize. I do Forgive me. I, we just don't have a lot of time. Do you believe that people in the Muslim religion stand condemned? Is that your view?
0: Again, Senator, I'm a Christian, and I wrote that piece, well, what According does that say? The statement of faith. Of I understand God. that. I don't know how
3: many Muslims there are in America. I really don't know. Probably a couple of million. Are you suggesting that all of those people stand condemned? What about Jews? They stand
0: condemned too. Senator, I'm a Christian.
3: I... I understand you are a Christian, but this country is made up of people who are not just. I understand that Christianity is the majority religion, but there are other people who have different religions in this country and around the world.
0: In your judgment. Do you think that people who are not Christians are going to be condemned? Thank you for probing on that question. As a Christian, I believe that all individuals are made in the image of God and are worthy of dignity and respect, regardless of their religious beliefs. I believe that, that as a Christian, that's how I should treat all individuals. And in do you think your statement that you put into that publication,
3: they do not know God, because they've rejected Jesus Christ, the son, and they stand condemned? Do you think that's respectful of other religions?
0: Senator, I wrote a post based on being a Christian and attending a Christian school that has a statement of faith that speaks clearly with regard to the centrality of Jesus Christ in salvation. I would simply say, Mr. Chairman,
3: that this nominee um, is really not someone with what this country is supposed to be about, I will vote
1: no. So that happened back in June of 2017. That was Bernie Sanders, of course, with Russ vote. Uh, Todd pop quiz: What was Russ vote being um, confirmed for?
4: It, like some exactly s- accountant exactly. or something. Exactly,
1: I think. he was he was being confirmed for the deputy deputy director of the Office of Management and Budget, I believe. Is that what it was? Management and Budget. Yes, the deputy director of the Office of Management and Budget. And here's Bernie Sanders sitting there questioning him. I know you're a Christian! Um, First of all, his name is back in the news again because, of course, the Office of Management and Budget is front and center right now with the government shutdown, and it's going to be even more show uh, because of uh, some missed paychecks that are expected uh, tomorrow for federal employees. And, of course, Russ Vogt is back into the news. Uh, Robert Costa uh, tweeted out yesterday, and I had this in the montage as well, uh, about just basically attacking um, uh, Russ Vogt because of his comments about Muslims. As you heard in that exchange again, and we played it again, Uh, As you heard in that exchange, Todd, basically all Russ Vogt was saying in that piece that he wrote at the Resurgent is, I'm a Christian. Now, to give you a little bit more context about... about what was being said here in this. So Wheaton University, this was a blog post for the Resurgent, written by Russ Vogt in, 26, in January of 2016 regarding a professor at Wheaton University. Wheaton University is an evangelical private school in the suburbs of Chicago that I think is Russ's alma mater. Uh, they have a statement of faith, um, as many private Christian sc- schools do, that you have to sign, you have to acknowledge, your name to, that you agree with, and that you will agree to abide by while you're there. Um, many Christian schools do this. Uh, I went to a, a Christian private school up in the Twin Cities, and uh, I had to sign one there when I was a student. I had to f- sign one there when I was a full-time uh, staff member. Um, you all, Everybody from the janitor on up to the president has to acknowledge and sign the Statement of Faith. I imagine it's the same thing at Wheaton University, or Wheaton College, if it's still called college. Um, this professor at Wheaton, decided that she was going to go all Muslim and a great controversy you remember this Todd great controversy erupted well um, Wheaton was trying I think trying to fire her uh, and people were getting mad that they were firing her because of her faith well she signed the statement of faith and so Russ wrote essentially wrote this blog post on the resurgent outlining why it's important for people of the faith uh, 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 people of faith at Wheaton to actually acknowledge what they already acknowledged in their statement of faith and that's basically what he was doing I'm not sure what the direction Steve was going to take this conversation was going, but I want to look at the theology of Bernie Sanders, uh, shall we, uh, for a little bit? Um, Because everybody has a theology, as we say on the show. Every government is a theocracy. It just depends on who's Theo. Everybody has a theology. It just depends on who's Theo. Todd, if I was just to ask you right offhand, judging from what you saw in that exchange from Bernie Sanders— What judgment or what um, impression would you get of Bernie Sanders' theology?
4: Uh, If you're—it's two legs good, four legs bad. If you're a Christian, bad. Everything else is uh, negotiable. I I wish it was a deeper pool uh, than that, uh, but it's not because it— again the people of reason and science i just aren't playing that game at all those are just words they use to scare you and bludgeon you in the head and then so they get on point and they ask things and frame things in ways that a duped down poorly educated culture feels uh on the defensive to answer which is preposterous uh, all all of the answers given by russ vote were right uh I said at the time, the problem with it is it was clear that he was answering as if he was on the defensive. He should have instantly gone on offense. Mm-hmm. Again, it, job be damned. And listen, I get that's challenging. Not all of us are cut from the same uh, cloth. Uh, it, it's, it, it's hard uh, to, to want to willingly be the poster child for something. Um, but instantly, he should have just stood up there uh, and, and instead of talking about the Wheaton School mission statement or whatever it was, he should have just started uh, reciting the Apostles' Creed the, or the Nicene Creed mm-hmm. and just said that, yeah, this is what we believe. We go to church, Democrats, Republicans, we recite it every Sunday. Why are you asking me this question? Next. This is preposterous. Either you let me go on and we stop this nonsense or you just admit right now that if you are a Christian who goes on to church on Sunday and recites the creed, you should not be getting a job within the federal government. That's what he believes.
1: Yeah, and that's that's kind of the, the general direction that I was going uh with this. The 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 theology of Bernie Sanders is essentially the same theology of the North Korean government. That's what it is, basically. The power and authority and majesty forever and ever, amen, goes to the state. And whoever's running the state, it is explicitly anti-Christian, because he has no problem in this exchange bigoting or being a bigot towards Christianity. That's what he is doing in this exchange, And as far as—we're not having a a super deep theological conversation here. I have, uh, you know, uh, no aspersions that we are at the moment. But um, as far as Christianity, and really conservatism goes in the United States, but specifically Christianity and true Christianity, we ought to be praying that Bernie Sanders uh, fill in the blank with your leftist, leftist, you know, progressive— In this country, we ought to be praying that this happens every single day, every single week, so that at the very least we will have more opportunities to do what Todd said and fight back and expose even more than they're doing to themselves what these people are and what they really want. Because Todd, this is not a message, politically speaking. Now, this is not a message that I don't think going to sell very well uh, to the Gen Pop that um, it's okay to be anything except for a Christian, which of course maybe it will because total depravity we ought to be for so we could do that go on offense and just for the reason of letting these people show who they really are i think that's again uh, his name russ Vogt is being dragged through the mud again by the washington post and robert costa this week because of um, his role and and managing the shutdown we ought to be we ought to be hoping that these people do this and if if they do do this, and we, we're already without an excuse, but if they do continue to use this line of attack, and I saw you retweeted something regarding Jack Phillips, a completely different case out of Colorado, how um, right after he won his Supreme Court battle, uh, some tr- cross-dressers walked into his cake shop and wanted to build, wanted him to build a cake celebrating it their gender transition. And so he's back in court again, uh, and the court, I think, found that there was... Uh, uh, the Colorado Civil Rights Commission is acting in bad faith. These these examples should just serve notice as as Christians, people of faith, conservatives. That if there is a day when we have no recourse, if there's a day that comes and we don't go to cho- court, go, don't go to court, we just go to jail or worse or better, I guess in our worldview, um, we have no excuse. Because these people are showing you what they are, who they are, and what they want done.
4: Jack Phillips is an example of what a, a guy who's willing to be the poster child. I mean, that guy bakes cakes, man. Mm-hmm. I mean, look, he, he look, from all of the interviews I see, it looks like this guy uh, is not like fist-in-your-face guy, but he's doing what needs to to be done, and in all of these stories, it's important to pay attention to the details to see that it is in fact true uh, that progressives uh, like Bernie Sanders uh, that their theology is just hating the Christians. Uh, because look at um, the argument made in court uh, by uh, on behalf of the Colorado Civil Rights. Uh, commission is that Jack Phillips, who said, I'm going to be the poster child. He's like, let's go straight. Let's take this to the Supreme Court. Let's do this. I have had it. They actually argued the people who have been usurping local authority for decades now by bending and twisting the law out of proportion and pushing things into federal jurisdiction that it has no place in being their primary argument This time around was that Jack Phillips was out of line for going straight to the federal government for satisfaction on this and that he should have exhausted all of the local options first. The local options that now once but twice have been shown to be overtly hostile to him as a Christian. These people have no standard other than hating Christians. They will, they, will, they will go in any direction. So the people that believe the federal government should be in more and more part of it, Well, not you, Jack. Not part of your life. Um, these people are dangerously duplicitous. And so thank God for men like Jack Phillips who will stand on the wall. He's the Leonidas for our times, man, against the hordes of the Persians. God bless him.
1: Yeah, that's well said. Um, and there was the other story as well that we um, we briefly uh, mentioned uh, too, which was Maisie Hirono. She uh, went after Knights of Columbus in going after one of Trump's judicial nominees, Brian Busher. Um, Todd, you're a Catholic. Knights of Columbus is a Catholic organization, men only. Uh, our very own Nate Madden is part of Knights of, of Columbus. Uh, as well. Um, Maisie Hirono, and then some feminist on Twitter with a blue check mark started calling it a radical right wing organization. Uh, tell our audience a little bit who is not Catholic. Uh, what is Knight Co- Knights of Columbus and how can it be stopped?
4: Yeah, I mean, zealots, good grief. I mean, uh, the. Uh the full bellies after mass from pancakes and eggs and sausage that's got to go uh they they have a uh campaign across America to uh provide if I'm not mistaken uh, eyeglasses uh oh, that's for children in need that's I, just the I worst. know I mean who, who needs eyes to see good grief let's Let's keep walking around in the dark. Uh, at my parish, uh, you know they're known for providing you know, a lot of the manpower uh, to help set up and take down and various uh, uh, social events. So that's just gendering. I mean, shoot that Man. one in the head uh, instantly. Uh, let's make the uh, the children and the elderly women do that. Okay. I mean they're 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 terrible people, Aaron. I'm I'm glad you let me uh, say that.
1: Yeah. Well, I'm glad you did because I mean. You're uniquely equipped as a Catholic to uh, to slam other Catholics. Maybe you can get a gig at CNN during that. Uh, well, hour one of the Steve Dace show— <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. Give it to me. I'm yeah. open. Yeah. Uh, hour one of the Steve Dace show minus Steve Dace is almost in the books. And after that hour of just Todd and I, if you feel like you need to clean out your ears— well, we have, Do you see that segue that I just made there? I did. I did yeah. <laughs> I'm a broadcasting professional, but seriously, if you feel like you need to clean out your ears after listening to us blabber on for an hour, there's a great product that we have partnered with here at Blaze TV and the Steve Bay show. It's called Wax RX. When was the last time you actually had your ears professionally cleaned? Have you ever? Um do you have itchy ears, ear pain, the plugged up feeling, constantly asking people to repeat themselves? I feel like I am sometimes as well. Well, Wax Rx uses physician developed technology that safely effectively removes earwax buildup then soothes it, soothes it with ear with uh, pH conditioned formula try the waxrx system risk free today just go to waxrx.com and use the offer code radio waxrx.com offer code radio we'll have Brad Wilcox the director of the National Marriage Project at the University of Virginia on right after the break stay tuned Hour number two of the steve day show on blaze tv radio and wherever and whenever you are on podcast as well steve is out today i'm aaron mcintyre i'm his producer along with uh, todd erzin the show editor here on the steve day show if you want to um, join the conversation. Have something to say to us, questions, insults, jokes. I like jokes. You can uh, email them. Uh, my email is aaron at stevedace.com. The big man's email is steve, Steve at stevedace.com. You can find us on Twitter at Steve Dace Show. I'm at Dace Producer. Todd is at Dace Online and on Facebook by searching Steve Dace. That last name is spelled D E A C E. Hour number two underway. Todd.
4: We are joined right now by uh, Brad Wilcox, director of the National Marriage Project at the University uh, of Virginia. Do I have those particulars correct, Brad? Welcome to the Steve Day Show.
5: Thanks, Todd. It's great to be there. I'm also the Institute for Family Studies as well.
4: Well, uh, before we get into the specific reason you're here, elaborate a little bit on all of that. Who uh, who are you? Uh, what are those organizations uh, about? And what are you doing on a daily basis there in Virginia?
5: Sure. I'm a professor of sociology at the University of Virginia, where I do some work with the National Marriage Project. I'm also involved with the Institute for Family Studies. And IFS is committed to investigating what goes into forging strong and stable marriages and families in America and really around the globe. And And you're allowed to
4: do that at a public university (laughs) still?
5: (laughs) Yes, you certainly are. And UVA is a great place in that regard. Excellent. Um, And this is all based upon our sense that strong families help uh, kids, especially, uh, flourish over the course of their lives now
4: that's that's wacky wild stuff who knew well listen we brought you here because we needed to have somebody help us assess what on earth did tucker carlson unleash because aaron and i were having a conversation uh, after after watching his monologue on fox i believe it was J- january 2nd about some of the hole's within the conservative movement and the Republican Party and the conservative media establishment when it comes to talking about uh, things related uh, to the uh, economy uh, and policy as it relates to human flourishing and individuals' responsibilities versus the collective. Uh, I want to get into more particulars, but after Tucker Carlson did that, it immediately got response from people deeply respected in the conservative movement, uh, Benjamin. Shapiro, David French and the snowball just kept growing. Uh, people like you, people like uh, Matthew uh, Peterson at, uh, at Claremont, uh, uh, Yuval Levin. Uh, there's been many sure. on both sides of this. I'm right. trying to unpackage something that we do here on a daily basis that uh, there, there is no uh, political force out there ultimately. Even if it is fundamentally amoral on some level, that you do not make sure that there needs to be a governing morality, making sure it doesn't go off the rails. And it was fascinating the degree to which Tucker Carlson, who in my estimation—and I think on yours—was just making. a a very grown-up argument about making sure our I's are dotted and our T's are crossed appropriately when it comes comes to economic things, Um, people tried to hang the progressive label around his neck as instantly he wanted to go uh, big government. So before we get into particulars, am I remotely accurately painting of a picture of what happened? How did you see it from the the 400-foot view of what happened?
5: Yeah, well, I think there there has been this view around for a very long time in the Republican Party that, you know, our deepest ills uh, come just from an overweening state, from a you know, big government, basically. And there hasn't been any recognition that some of the changes in the economy, um, you know, may also have a hand in explaining why it is that um, certain sectors of our society, poor working class Americans, are really struggling when it comes to things like work uh marriage uh, family uh and even church i my work shown that too so that's i think the sort of where you know and and you have tucker kind of coming in with kind of this newer perspective and saying look folks it's not just about personal responsibility um it's also about some bigger things happening in the economy that tend to put uh, working class and, and, and even poor families and men in particular you know, at a disadvantage that then have impacts um, on their approach of things like getting and staying married.
4: Was there, before you decided to write, before any of the responses actually came out, uh, did you read any one thing that even if you agreed with it instantly made you think, oh, he's going to get it for this? Or did you, were you surprised by the level of reaction he got out of the gate from fellow People of the right, conservatives, who took him to task? Or did you see this coming?
5: No, I saw this coming. In fact, there was an interview between Ben Shapiro and Tucker Carlson a couple of weeks ago right. that kind of anticipated this debate. Um, so, you know, Carlson was kind of expressing concerns about automation its impact on less educated men's jobs and um, you know Shapiro kind of immediately pushed back and said you know something along the lines of you know this is sort of just part and parcel of living in a dynamic uh, capitalist economy and so I, I wasn't surprised when this, um, this debate emerged pretty quickly after his, uh, his monologue last week.
4: I've- I find it interesting that, and Tucker started by, uh, I believe it was even the image uh, of Mitt Romney that he associated with this, and the argument with Mitt Romney a week ago talking about uh, Trump and and character, and instantly uh, the same people that said it is vital that we have a man of character at the head of our institutions then seem to at least implicitly say that the government that that man is heading should somehow be amoral at best, and not have any moral implications whatsoever. Do, you, do you find that as ironic as I do?
5: Well, I mean, I think that's I, that's there's some truth to that. I guess you know, I think what's interesting about this debate is that you know some of the same folks who are more in the Romney camp are also kind of more in the classical you know small government uh, pro free market camp, and you know I think that Tucker Carlson was you know was responding you know, to both Romney um, but, and to the sort of larger idea that if we just kind of keep government small, you know, and let the market go, that things will kind of right themselves. And I think Tucker's perspective obviously differs from that. And Trump's perspective on the campaign trail in 2016 also, of course, differed from that.
4: So this seems to be an argument fundamentally, but what is the authentic role of Government, and largely within conservative uh, circles. what what did Tucker Carlson get right in terms of that broader question? what is our what is government's duty uh, to its fellow man?
5: Well, I think what Tucker Carlson got right was number one, uh, underlying the fact that marriage has become uh, really divided by class in America he was talking in his uh, monologue about the way in which increasingly in his words, quote, marriage is a luxury only the affluent in America can afford. Now, that, that's overdoing it a bit because there are plenty of working class, happily married couples out there, we know, for instance. But it is the case, if you look at kind of the big picture, that only about 39% of working class uh, adults uh, are married compared to 56% of middle upper class Americans. And this divide in marriage is a new thing. There was no divide like this back in 1970 or 1955. So something is new, you know, here. And I I think the second point that Carlson made was that part of the story here is is that men who don't have college degrees have seen their wages. He said decline. It's probably more stagnate is probably the the more accurate uh, description. But that stagnation uh, for working class men when it comes to their incomes and the stability of their jobs to more unstable today makes them less attractive as husbands and makes them more vulnerable to divorce as well when things get tough in a marriage. Um, and, and and Carlson sort of made that point, um, in his well, he said that the drop in marriage is linked to disasters that inevitably follow things like more drug and alcohol abuse, um, you know, more incarceration, um, and fewer families formed in the next generation. And then the third point he wanted to make was that, that, you know, bad public policy decisions and elite behavior more generally, um, has, you know, some important responsibility in all of this. Um, and he said that elites are quote, the very same affluent married people, the ones making virtually all the decisions in our society are doing pretty much nothing to help the people below them get and stay married. Um, and of course he was saying, even though they themselves are enjoying stable marriages and, Relatively high levels of, of affluence. So that was kind of the the I think a quick way of summarizing, you know, his argument um, And I think in terms of the main points that he was making that he was on the mark um, He had a, f- a few specifics in his monologue that I think were, were not relevant or not not on the mark but sort of the thrust of his argument about what's happening to marriage about how economics and public policy are implicated in this marriage divide and and how elites don't seem to really care that much about how their decisions uh, and their um, approach to um, values, um, how it's sort of um, trickling down in ways that are, uh, in this case, uh, negative, both actually for poor and for now working class Americans.
4: Well- you, you, in mentioning that something is different now concerning marriage, you're you're absolutely right. Uh, but the, the government has always been uh, led to a large extent by something resembling elites. I mean, it was founding fu- founded fundamentally sure. by elites. So so as it pertains to this, and I agree with you. What were the specific ways that an elitist approach to government? Uh, led us to this place or at least tacitly contributed to this place? And how could it looked differently with a more everyman approach to government? Because I think uh, people who agree with this column uh, or agree with the monologue like you and I do need to have some kind of answer to this question so that we can't accurately be labeled as having progressive utopian dreams that can solve everybody's problems.
5: Well, I think what I would say is that what's important here is that for, uh, and it's true, I think in every society, there are going to be elites. It's in communist, in capitalist, in medieval, you know, there's always going to be an elite. So the question is, you know, is in our day and in our moment, are our elites attentive to the ways in which their actions and their policies and their cultural commitments affect not just themselves um, and their own, you know, social uh, networks, but how they affect people lower down the economic ladder um, including both the poor and including the working class. And I think one can make a good argument that in the last half century, when it comes to the culture, when it comes to our communities, our civil society, and then when it comes to economic policy and economic decisions that our elites have not been paying very much, um, you know, attention to how their own decisions, um, and their own commitments, are in many cases having a, a big negative impact on working class and poor families uh, here in America.
4: Well, I, when we talk about issues like this, I, I kind of label uh, it, elitist consequences, the gated community effect. We, we can, in the past, uh, you you often could, uh, you, you had no choice but to Get involved on on some level because y- unless you lived you know behind a moat or in a castle, uh, and even then you know on some level you had to keep you had to work with the the simple people uh, to keep a, a level of a baseline of peace. Uh, here, the gate America now has been a kind of on autopilot for a a very long time, and the gate of effect. I think I mean you can you can have a level of. Uh, unmooring and degradation to fundamental institutions without the consequences to your own life— you know, the, it, it's it, it's somebody else's right. life, but I can go hide from this. I can still do it. I can have all my trips. I can go to my kids' soccer games. My kids are in a different school than your kids that are, right. don't have fathers. And, uh, so I call it the gated community effect, and I think it affects – it goes way beyond uh, T- Tucker's uh, monologue uh, to Ill, all kinds of ills that we have. Uh, can you elaborate right. on that to the degree that yeah, you now, agree we, with it or not?
5: Yeah. No, we live in a society, unfortunately, that's much more segregated now by uh, by income. So people live in neighborhoods, you know these sort of cookie cut cookie cutter neighborhoods oftentimes, um, where they're surrounded by middle class families, they're surrounded by upper class families. This is true, you know, obviously especially in suburbs, but it's also even true kind of in particular neighborhoods in 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 big cities, where there are some neighborhoods that are that are quite affluent and exclusive, and some obviously that are <laughs> that are not. And so people are, are um, protected um, from experiencing, both for themselves and for their kids, you know, by and large, the problems that follow from, you know, <clears throat> high levels of unemployment, high levels of family breakdown, um, you know, and all the other things that follow from, you know, from those two things. Um, so that's, yeah, so they don't necessarily have to sort of see up in close and personal what happens when people are not stably employed, what happens when families fail to form in the first place or break down on on a large scale in the second place. Of course, we know that divorce happens everywhere. We know that non-marital childbearing happens everywhere. But what my own research tells us is that divorce is much less common now among upper middle class, about 60% less common, and that non-marital childbearing is much less common among Americans with college degrees compared to those who don't have college degrees. And so when it comes to the families of so many other things in our society, middle-class Americans are actually adhering to a relatively traditional script, but they're not supporting that kind of script, that kind of marriage mentality, um, you know, in their uh, public roles as school superintendents, as policymakers, as entertainers, you know, uh, journalists, uh, or what have you.
4: You know, there there was... The one Tucker said one thing that instantly I thought could be uh, attacked uh, from the left, where <laughs> the people have been relatively quiet, but since uh, marriage is your real house, they were talking about, uh, Tucker said, the, the simple fact that men are often making s- less money uh, than women is a problem for family stability. Now, y- y- I- I'm sure you can go in to the weeds on that sure. based on your research what does that mean for healthy marriages because if you just if you want to you cuz oh what a bunch of misogynists they don't want women to have jobs and go out and make an income and that's not tucker's point at all what does that say about why marriages aren't uh, aren't currently sustainable right now amongst the lower uh, end of the socio economic class
5: Yeah, I I was sort of reframing a little bit. I think it's more about kind of men having access to decent paying, stable jobs. And what we see is that when men can hold down uh, decent paying, you know, stable jobs, uh, those men are happier. uh, They have a stronger sense of self-worth and they're more attractive as, uh, as, you know, as husbands. um, And they're much less likely to end up getting divorced. By contrast, when men are not stably employed, uh, when they lose their jobs, Um, you know, or when their wages aren't particularly good, they often don't get married in the first place and end up in divorce court in the second place. Um, so I think we need to think about ways to strengthen, um, job opportunities and men's connection to work, um, among men who don't have college degrees. And it's this particular population, working class, poor men who have lost, uh, relative ground anyways, um, in the last few decades.
4: No, I'm glad you reframed it because that's what I wanted you to do. So this isn't remotely ideological. You're just this is pragmatic analysis of what's going on. Yeah, I
5: mean we we know for instance from a recent study from a Harvard sociologist that when men lose their jobs, they're much more likely to get divorced and it's it's actually his unemployment that's much more predictive than her unemployment in a marriage. So this is this is not like, you know, right-wing You know, sort of talking points. This is just simple, simple sociology being done here at some of our best institutions. You mean it's
4: it's reason and science? Exactly. Uh, Well, now let's uh, let's be uh, prescriptive for this. Uh, What can and should government and be specific about the levels? Uh, because not everything uh, can be solved at the federal level but per- sure. perhaps at state initiatives what have you they you may know of uh, all of the ones that are worth talking about in anybody's backyard what can should must the government do better
5: well let me just begin though, by by stressing that actually I agree with people like David French you know um, and Ben Shapiro in terms of stressing the importance primarily or first and foremost of personal responsibility in other words people have to say understand that they're most likely to thrive and even survive in a situation no matter what the situation is when they have a sense of kind of you know ownership and responsibility so that that's certainly still the case yes but it's also the case too that it's not an accident that working class communities have been decimated in the last 30 years when it comes to work and marriage. Um, It's not that there's been kind of this epidemic of irresponsibility that's been (laughs) emerging spontaneously in working-class communities. There are economic forces, there are political forces, there are cultural forces that have kind of come against these communities. And so to respond to those forces, I think we can do a couple of things. One is on the policy level, Uh, stop penalizing marriage. Uh, Now it's the case that when it comes to things like earned income tax credit um, and Medicaid, for instance, that now are pretty important for many working class families, that there are plenty of cases where people kind of can get more support, more money, um, healthcare, you know, if they're not married. Um, And that obviously has has an important negative impact um, on on marriage and, and sort of the institution of marriage in working class America. Um, I think it's also important for us to think about ways to, um, subsidize working class wages. And there's some good ideas from Oren Cass on this question. He's an important writer on, 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 work in America. Um, at the federal level, I would also say too, and this relates to, to state and local responsibilities, we need to do a lot less when it comes to sort of the standard higher education agenda and a lot more when it comes to better funding and focusing upon vocational education and apprenticeship training uh, for young adults who are not on that college track. Recognizing, in fact, most Americans today, even today, especially most men, will not get a four-year degree. So given that reality, you know, our, our spending, our policies, how local schools think about um, you know, high school you know, for our kids needs to be uh, re-engineered, uh, reformed to do a lot more for kids, for young adults, especially young men who are not on that college track. And who will do a lot better in this economy. And then later on, you know, when it comes to forming families, if they have, you know, um, good vocational training, good apprenticeship um, connections to local businesses and their communities. So that's a, a second idea. And then when it comes to local policies, I think we need to think too about ways that, you know, counties, uh, cities, and towns can begin to think more about how um, their, um, their agencies, you um, do taxes and fees. Um, And so, for instance, when it comes to just a simple thing like, you know, the water bill, um, the typical thing is the more water you use, the more you're charged per gallon for that water. And of course, if you have, you know, adults and kids in a household, you're going to use more water. And so what you're doing is kind of uh, unintentionally taxing, you know, families who are using a lot of water um. So we could think about maybe giving at the local level a kind of a discount uh, to families with kids that would sort of take into account the many other costs that they're incurring in terms of raising the next generation. Those are the ideas about policies. When it comes to culture, there's a lot we could do, obviously, to make our culture more marriage-friendly. That's a big question in and of itself. And then when it comes to sort of civil society and, and our community institutions, including our religious ones, we need to do a lot more to think about who we're targeting. So when it comes to religion, for instance... Most young adult ministries are targeting college students in four-year colleges. They're not targeting young adults in community colleges. They're not targeting young adults who are not going to college. And therefore, they're missing a big share of our young adult population and con- sort of consigning, you know, many of the young adults to be kind of civically and religiously uh, disengaged. So again, I think in terms of thinking about elites and their responsibility, when you think about how public policy how our civic institutions, including our religious ones, um, and how our cultural decisions affect not just ourselves and our friends, um, but also you know, our fellow working class and poor uh, citizens.
4: On multiple fronts there, you nailed something that I've uh, been talking about for a long time. And it's it, it, this is a road to hell, uh, is paved with good intentions argument, but the overemphasis on college— When you when you're in high school, I mean, you and I never once thought I was not going to go to college. You look like you're I'm I'm 46. You look like you're roughly. You probably of course I'm going, but that's not. It still isn't most people yeah right. and you already start to learn your sense of perspective and, and self-worth yeah and and, right. and and you're you you already become unmoored uh from pursuing the kind of dignity that is implied in being uh, a a breadwinner and a leader of a family and having pride no matter what you choose to do so we don't have a sit- when they're in high school and then the way we uh, only pursue people and uh in college, like the way you said, um, uh, along uh, religious lines, we can that snowball just keeps bigger and bigger, and people feel devalued. Uh, um, they just feel like a, an almost irrelevant piece of the puzzle. There's there's not a one of us who would not start, you know, the slouching towards Gomorrah, as Robert Bork w- once put it, in terms of how we live our lives when it's been implicit for years that the things that interest us. Are of no value unless we go to college.
5: You know, I could have put that better, man. I think it's definitely the case that we devalue um, non-college educated tracks, uh, and by and by, we we I'm saying elites especially, um, you know. And um, yeah, I mean, I have I have kids who are on the college track, but I have kids who are on the vocational track, and there's a definite difference in how they're treated. Um, in our high school and uh, <laughs> and our community. And you're right, it's it's, it's unfortunate, uh, given that only 36%, even today, young adults will actually get a four-year degree. Right. Um, and yet we spend a lot more money and give a lot more attention in our federal, state, and local government institutions and schools to the college track.
4: Well, uh, Brad Wilcox, uh, uh, Director of Marriage... Uh, get, bring it back to me, Director of
5: yeah, the National Marriage Project in University Virginia and then at the Methane Institute for Family Studies as well
4: well, you've been generous with your time we're grateful for adding some uh, perspective to a conversation that I hope uh, doesn't stop and we have to have you back to diagnose again because uh, we've been ho- waiting for a long time for this to go beyond uh, our show and beyond uh, work like uh, yours, so thanks for coming in Brad thanks Todd Aaron, um, you and I were uh, because Steve uh, was up to his eyeballs and in other things. You mm-hmm. were you came you and I came to this discussion before Steve did, yeah. Uh, and we lit the fire under him. Both the, you and I had the exact same reaction. Like, did that actually happen? Yeah. Thank goodness.
1: Yeah, as I said um, before in, in last hour, this is a conversation that we've been trying to spark on this show at least since I've been here. I know it's probably been before even I got here because I listened to this show before I. I became the producer, and it is one that is at the center of um, our soul as a nation, our, our individual uh, ethics, and our politics as well. Uh, the soul of the nation. What kind of people are we? Are, are we, um, as I, I believe Brad mentioned, are the elites uh, really um, understanding how their actions impact those who are underneath them economically and again, this is not um, – when we talk about these, it's it's difficult to stay away from terms that might get your spidey senses going um, for being uh, akin to the Bernie Sanders populist socialist populism thing. I hope that's not the case. I hope you can be discerning. So there's, there's one thing there. Uh, there's another aspect of this. That's our individual ethics as well. And you kind of hit on one part of that towards the end of the interview. Are we really understanding what we're doing to ourselves when we get when we uh, go into things like college? When maybe college is not the best thing for you, you could go to a trade school, become a welder, make sixty grand a year, in some cases, you know, things like that. Are we underst- That's an, a reflection of our personal ethic that we really want this thing over here that we don't need, and that is in a lot of cases college. And Brad is, I mean. He's, he's an honest guy because he's at the University of Virginia, and we just had an open and honest conversation about college. And then thirdly, thirdly politics. And this is one where it's the most frustrating. Politics and, and probably discourse as well, where this issue, that this, the debate that Tucker Carlson sparked, this strikes at the center of our discourse and our politics as well. And I want to talk about that going into the break because I have heard countless times— from people, even in my generation, who still identify as Republican or you know right right of the aisle, I've heard this term uh, many times from your generation, Todd, and from the older generations. I've heard this terms this term from from people who are on the left side of the aisle uh, and the right side of the aisle um, as well. And I'll tell you what that is uh, coming up here on the Steve Dace Show. Minus Steve Dace, it's uh, myself, Aaron McIntyre, Todd Erzin, uh, producer, editor, respectively. Uh, getting into this conversation, this debate that uh, Tucker Carlson sparked regarding um, kind of the uh, the soul <laughs> of our country when it comes to economics and our understanding of economics, uh, economic issues as well. We'll get more into it on the other side of the break here on Blaze TV, Blaze Radio Network, wherever, whenever you are on the podcast later on as well. If you want to tweet at Todd and I, share your thoughts about this issue, you can do that. At Dace Producer is my Twitter handle. At uh, Dace Online is Todd's Twitter handle. We look forward to continuing this conversation in just a bit here on Blaze TV, Blaze Radio Network. And back one final time here on Blaze TV, Blaze Radio, wherever, whenever you are on the podcast, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, all the great places you can get the podcast as well. We're discussing this uh, debate that was kicked off by Tucker Carlson a couple weeks ago uh, regarding the economy or economics and our understanding of it and uh, a lot of issues surrounding this as well. We want to know what you think about um, this conversation. Which side of the debate do you fall down? If you've watched the monologue and if you have an informed uh, take on this or just what you've been listening to for the last half hour between Todd and uh, Brad Wilcox, uh, I'd like to hear from you. 888-900-3393. 3393 We'll take some calls here, uh, hopefully coming up in uh, just a little bit as well. Uh, so I teased before the break uh, that there's a term uh, that you hear or a phrase that you hear quite a bit from both sides of, uh, of the both sides of the political spectrum, um, everywhere from every generation. I hear this all the time, and it goes something like this: I'm a little bit more socially um, socially liberal, but fiscally I'm conservative. If nothing else from this debate that's had. That's been um, kicked off by Tucker Carlson. If nothing else happens other than Tucker eviscerating that lie and blowing up that, um, that wall that really doesn't exist between social and fiscal conservatism or uh, what have you, uh, I think this is a worthwhile thing to have. Because um, the, the, the economy and your understanding of fiscal issues – your understanding of uh, the economy and what makes it work is always, always, always going to follow your understanding of the family. That's what we're talking about, really, when we talk about social issues. It's really, we're talking about the family. Because your understanding of fiscal issues or your views of fiscal issues is always going to follow your views of social issues is because the economy the strength, the health, the overall strength and health of the economy is always going to follow the strength of the family. We got into that a little bit with Brad Wilcox as well. And why is that, Todd? Well, it's, I mean, you can point to tons of research, Brad uh, pointed to a little bit as well. The main factor in whether or not a family sticks together is whether or not, at least from his research, uh, is whether or not uh, the father has a job uh, it's much more uh, economically viable for people to live together than to live separated as well i mean that's just a basic i think that's a basic fact that we could probably all all agree to as well there's a myriad of of reasons but you wonder why the we've had the explosive growth in the welfare sector since the 60s um you wonder why the economy really other than the 80s uh, has just kind of been a little, and uh, you know, the, the dot-com boom and bust uh, has been not quite as roaring as it once was. Although we're as far as the stock market goes, and right now we're in a pretty good time. But we never really had sustained success. Uh, it is the the fruits of what happened during the sixties and seventies. That's what I would posit. That would be my theory, Todd. Um, but that's that's the main reason I think why this debate is so good to have. Blowing up. That supposed wall between fiscal and social conservatism, that's the main reason why this conversation is yeah. um, is, is worthwhile at least to have
4: you, done. You're exactly right. Uh, the uh, entomology of the word economy it comes from the Greek, and it, it, it means household the economy one of my i, I hate it I, a word i hate more than any in political parlance and people on the right use all the time is consumers
0: no i yeah.
4: I, I loathe it <laughs> that's true the the household is full of of families it's full of you and me the economy is is supposed to serve us to the and absolutely it will serve us better to the degree uh that we uh are uh the the people who believe that a uh, the constitution written was written for a moral and religious people uh but no other but you know we aren't Uh, delusional as Christians. We believe in in sin. We believe we are broken. We don't believe in utopia, uh, this side of heaven. So we, we don't believe that capitalism as great as it is uh is this utopian fantasy we we believe uh, Winston Churchill says democracy is the worst form of government except for all the rest of them i paraphrase the same thing versus capitalism it's the worst form of economy except for all the rest of them it's absolutely the best that we've got but the point churchill's making it's not it's not close to perfect uh therefore uh, it's incumbent incumbent on us when this thing that we have in place seems to be more than before leaving some people behind, uh, and perhaps uh, affecting other vital institutions like marriage, it's not delusional or progressive to ask questions about what— can the government do better? And this is where we have become so reactionary. We, we have our buzzwords and our silos. We must live in. That's a much, much different question yes. than am I growing the government? I don't want the government to be grown. I want it to be taken away from the federal government. But I've have t- had conversations before with uh, in terms of tax rates. I sorry. I would eat as as pernicious as uh, our taxation has become. Uh, I would absolutely be fine with you raising my taxes – this is generally speaking uh, at, at the local level if you would gut them at the federal level. I can I can much easier respond to how those are being spent. I can go to my city council meeting, my school board meeting. Um, I, I I feel the direct uh, result of those taxes in terms of the uh, the parks I'm going to, the schools. Absolutely, by all means, raise my taxes. Uh, now, does that mean I'm for bigger government? No, that means I'm actually for local control. So. Don't be so emotional. Don't be a progressive. That's where you're really being a progressive. If you're being knee-jerk and reactionary and overly emotional about something, it is not a progressive notion to ask if the government can be doing something far Better that doesn't mean it needs to be more invasive. And don't get hooked on any one prescription that either our guest Brad had. He mentioned multiple. Of. We could yeah. consider this. You know, don't fine if some of them aren't your cup of tea. Fine, but can we have a better government than the one we have now? Whether we're talking about this issue or others, your answer better if you're not a progressive. It better we be damn well yes we can. So let's try it.
1: Yeah, and that's why I said I hope that this conversation forces us maybe even to be discerning about the uh, about what we mean and 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 uh, our, our in, uh, uh, motivations behind the words that we use because we can quickly get into uh, talking about things and and uh, people will, again, the spidey sense of, well, that sounds, like, uh, that sounds like you sound like Bernie. You want the government to get bigger, like just what you were talking about. No, that's not what we want. Here's another popular phrase um, that this, um, as far as this part of the conversation, uh, you'll, you'll probably hear a lot. Uh, you can't legislate morality. Uh, One, nobody's talking about legislating morality right now. Uh, Two, morality is the only thing you legislate. And three, you can't legislate righteousness. That's really what you mean. Morality is the only thing that you legislate. Um, If the government can be doing something to clear the path to get out of your way— in order that you might flourish, and I mean the true meaning of flourish as not the kind of self-actualization that leftist philosophy wants to have you believe, but uh, get out of your way so that the individual unit of our economy can actually flourish. Uh, that's something that we should look forward to, like the suggestion about the the, the water that uh, Brad was talking about and and getting rid of those obstacles for families as well. That's what we're talking about, the government actually doing what the government should be doing and not getting in and banning our straws let's go to tammy in new york tammy uh is uh, is calling in now and tammy what do you think about this uh, debate and where do you come down
2: hi um i'm really glad to hear you talking about college versus careers for the kids that has been my battle cry all year this year uh, my daughter's a senior And it started with, in the school, um, what they do is they put out a newsletter every year with the front page of the newsletter being the students and what career um, they're going to go to what college. And it ends up To me, shaming the kids who don't go more than it does giving accolades to the kids who do, I know kids that have gone to college just because it's going to be on that front page and taken on needless debt and then dropped out a semester later. And um, I went to the school because my daughter uh, had enough to get out at noon to look into a career, to work, and also to do an internship. And it was very hard. They did not want her to leave. They want her to go to college. I'm like, do you guys get a kickback? What's the deal? Why does she have to go to college? And so they wanted to know what she would do on the internship, if it would give her college credits, so on and so forth, which to me was beside the point. Because even as far as being a welder or a massage therapist or anything like that, that's great if they want to. What about the kids who want to be a waitress? or work in their family business or, you know, something that isn't quote unquote as glamorous. Um, you know, it's just, they're shamed for just doing an honest living.
4: You're you're absolutely right. Tammy, how many kids do you have?
2: I have two. One's going to college and one's going into the workforce.
4: Well, uh, I'm surround. I don't know about you, I'm surrounded by parents all the time, and it's ironic. They're constantly talking about how unique or special, listen, I love my kids, I have four daughters, uh, unique or special Mm -hmm. or amazing or whatever, but you know, hey, they all have feet of clay, you know. They're, let's kids don't over teach teach them the fundamentals uh, at that age. Don't fill their heads up with how special they are. I mean, love the heck out of them, but you know, they they, they can't, parents these days are constantly talking about that. But then, when it comes time to actually see them off as adults, then mm-hmm. they pound the square peg in the round hole, and no one's special mm-hmm. anymore. And everybody must go to college and mm-hmm. do the exact same thing. No, this is the time where after eighteen years, you should have realized. Not when they're five. You need to pay much more attention at that time but when they're 18 listen you should know if you're their parent you should be helping along these sides this i this kid right now at the very least isn't cut out for college they have different dreams they have different aspirations we I, it is remarkable how backwards we have it as a culture in terms of parenting we're not helping this and and i god bless you tammy for uh, not falling prey to all the drunken rhetoric out there about what must our kids do to be happy you've got it right
2: I think it's hard for parents to know what to do. I went to the principal. I went to the guidance counselor. I went to the school board members personally, and there's just no support for it. And some of them that do support it don't want to verbalize it, and I don't know why. But it's really sad because it starts at that level at the school, and it carries throughout the society, I believe. I'm really glad to hear you guys talking about it. Thank you.
1: Yeah. And Tammy, thanks for calling in. That's a huge part of this conversation, Todd, as well. And I said in the last segment, um, uh, this reflects, you know, this hits three areas of personal ethics and one of the examples of personal ethics is whether or not you're willing to basically sin against yourself by putting yourself into slavery, by going uh, into debt um, to go to college. And I think that's that's one of the key issues. On the other side of that is what Tammy is talking about, this notion um, that is everywhere, and you probably already experienced this in your own, you know, going to college yourself, and you've got uh, you know, four kids as well. You're going to hear it, and you're probably going to i um, going to uh, hear it even more and more that you have to go to college. you got to go to college, and it's just not true. Uh, that is – uh, that's a moral conversation as well. It's a different subject, but we can have a moral conversation about anything at all. But it is – I mean for me, uh, college and even going into debt a little bit uh, for what I wanted to do was necessary, and I would have never had the opportunities, never had the opportunities to do what I've done in my career without going to college. It's not the same for everybody as well. People have different giftings that they don't need to go six figures into debt um, or more to 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 you know kind of make those dreams a reality as well. Anything? Any thoughts more on that that you want to share, Todd? Uh, I,
4: I again, it's it's one of the m- most addictive drugs yep. to parents these days. That whole college track thinking, uh, and <laughs> you, your kids. Quite frankly, many of your kids, I'm just and we all know it to be true, because we talk about the places Hollywood, uh, academia, the places that uh, progressive brainwashing happens, uh, a lot of your kids just flat out deserve better than college, quite frankly.
1: <laughs> yeah. Uh, got time for one more call. Christina in Florida is on the line and Christina. Uh, thank you for calling in. Welcome to the Blaze TV radio um, and podcast later on. Uh, what do you think about this debate? Where do you come down?
6: Well, first of all, thank you guys so much for talking about the subjects you do and raising the conversations that are not being raised, that I think are at the core of some of these larger issues that people think are being solved. Okay. Okay. I am a mother and my husband. Um, Both of us went to trade school. So, and then we have two daughters now in college. However... My, my intrinsically in me, I wanted them to go to college when they were younger because I did not get to go. Thank God I got smarter (laughs) and I caught that before, you know, they actually, you know, we presented that track to them because my husband said, why? He said, no, he started as a police officer and then, you know, Even didn't want to get into the politics of being, you know, won't get into all of that, of being uh, too high up because it was politics and ended up retiring with more money than people who had a higher rank than him because he was smart economically. And his father didn't graduate from college, um, didn't even go to college, and owns his own radio station, Free and Clear. Okay? So, that just means that they are better at what they do and knew they didn't need to go to college, right? So, let me get back to, I'm sorry, I'm trying to keep the right train of thought here because, you know, there are so many subjects. This is why you guys do it, because you can stay on track. (laughs) Um, Really quick. So, we did get them on the track. We gave them the choices. Because it's a huge choice. Because one of our artists now is a science researcher. Okay, she's graduating with a, um, basically in the STEM studies, which is, you know, very difficult. And, um, but she knew. You know, it's a hard choice. She's going to be a slave, basically. You know, however, she has good choices to make and she's got other talents, you know, such as, you know, you were saying about having other talents when you don't have a college degree. I have those. My husband has those. We're very social. We're very, you know, good communicators. And so she has those things. So, you know, hopefully she can get into a really good job where she can be smart enough, you know, to get out of debt first and how to do that. But a lot of people don't know. So they're slaves. They're going to be slaves the rest of their life to the loan. And I think that's Mm -hmm. why they push the narrative, you have to go to college. We tried to get our younger daughter. We gave her every other option. Are you sure? Why do you want to go to college? You can do this here. You can do this there. You can do this there. And we tried to give them the skills they needed in case they did not want to go to college. Now there are college graduates that are graduating who cannot hold a conversation, who cannot lead, who cannot make a decision on their own. They still don't know how to critically think. They've been brainwashed, mm-hmm. and I don't want to get into the science system. My daughter goes to a private, one of the top ten private colleges that are, it's a smaller one, for science, okay. and thank goodness. College is a fine a option. We're,
4: back. we're running out of time <laughs> a little bit, uh, so thank you for coming. Uh, uh, Calling in what well, you've done. I talked to all my kids and they know what, uh, what my answer about is you help them answer two questions to sum up your whole phone call. And it has nothing to sh- I'm going to college. It has what am I good at? And what do I love? And those are life questions. Those aren't just academic questions. You have to answer the, Those two aren't always the same thing. You might be really good at something that doesn't pay very well uh, or love, so, uh, 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 love something that doesn't pay very well. So you have to go to school for something or a trade, something you're good at to pay the bills. you got to find that life balance. So you succeeded with your kids. Many parents don't.
1: Yeah, and there's a, a, also another side of this argument that I've uh, I've seen before quite a bit, um, and that is the side of the businesses, the really big businesses who won't even give applicants the time of day unless they have that bachelor's degree after their name, even for entry-level positions that really probably shouldn't need a college degree in the first place. That's another part. There's the academic or academia side of things that just say you have to go to college. And then there's the business, the big business side of things, which, you know, employ a lot of people, make a lot of lives richer, but still are saying, yeah, you have to go to college as well. Huge issue. Great conversation. Thank you guys for uh, listening in and giving us uh, a little bit of your time today as Steve is out. We'll see you tomorrow. Until then, John 317.
0: This is Steve Dace.
5: On the Blaze Radio Network.